So, what is next? Um, this is typically a question that uh, we ask ourselves, usually at kind of the beginning or ending uh, of a season, as it were. Uh, usually it kind of is the bookend of when something has just happened or when something is coming to a close. Like, it would obviously be very easy for Jennifer Bates uh, to be asking the question, what's next? So, When's the last time you asked the question, it's a, a simple question, but I find it often to be a question that's uh, frustrating at times, perplexing at times, bless you, and sometimes even paralyzing because you don't have an answer of what's next. And so you just kind of live in this world of, I don't know what to do, and so I'm just kind of waiting. I'm not sure how to operate. I'm just kind of going through the motions. And so typically... You see this sometimes in relationships of guys who are really excited to get the girl. They get the girl, and then their next thought is, huh, what's next? I got the girl. What am I supposed to do? Or the relationship, from the girl's perspective, doesn't go so well, and it ends, and then she's left asking the question, huh, what's next? You see this in marriage. People so excited to get married, and then they get married, and they're like, well, what's next? We're now officially married, we're husband, we're wife, we're one, we've done, what's next? Uh, you see this sometimes with kids, you see this especially at the end of maybe school. If you've ever graduated, whether it's uh, middle school, whether it's high school, whether it's college, whether it's grad school, you go through all of these hoops only to get to the end of it all and you've got letters next to your name and degrees and plaques you can put on the wall, but I can't tell you how many people I've met they have all of this stuff, and they're really still wrestling with the simple question, but well, what's next? Well, I don't know. I just I went through all these channels for the last 13, 17, sometimes even longer years, and I have no idea of what is next. Jesus, last week, we celebrated the fact, the reality that Jesus is alive. It was amazing that Jesus Christ, who was brutally murdered, rose from the dead. Many, many eyewitnesses. We'll look at some of this this morning. But I wonder, on Friday, how many of the disciples, how many of the followers were asking a simple but yet perplexing question, well, what's next? What do we do now? And if it is true, and I believe with all my heart and soul it is true, that Jesus is alive, he was murdered, he was killed, and was raised back to life on the third day, we better have a great answer for this question of what's next. What does my life look like? Because if Jesus is alive, if he is really alive, then at some level, and I would suggest a huge level, our lives should be completely different. Our lives should be oriented around the fact that a man who was dead but was raised back to life and is still alive to this day our lives should be radically different. So it's a simple question this morning of what's next? What does your life look like in light of the fact that Jesus is alive? In fact, in light of the tomb being empty. My fear is that if you do not have an answer to the question of what is next, if Jesus is alive, you're a Christian, you have to have an answer for what's next. If you don't have an answer, you will quickly become a Christian atheist. This is not a term I've coined or come up with, uh, but it's a phrase that's very helpful. A Christian atheist is someone who 
claims to believe in God, but yet their life does not reflect at all what they claim to believe. If you don't know what's next, you will quickly become a Christian atheist. And I would venture to say for much of my spiritual journey, my life reflected one who claimed to believe something, but if you were to look at my life, it didn't really reflect exactly what I claimed to believe. And that's an empty, empty way to live. Claiming to believe something, but yet it doesn't show up at all in how you live. It doesn't show up in your marriage. It doesn't show up in your parenting. It doesn't show up in your work. It doesn't show up anywhere. It's just words. So the question today is, what's next? And I think one of the things that was helpful for me, uh, at least this week, was Jesus rose from the dead, but he didn't immediately just shoot like a rocket up to heaven. He did things appeared to people over the span of roughly 40 days. And what was really helpful to me is, what did Jesus actually do after the resurrection? And that's why I wanted, before we jump back into Romans next week, and we've been walking through Romans for the better part of a year, we're going to finish, or not finish, but we're going to start again in Romans uh, next Sunday. But I couldn't get beyond this one question of, well, if Jesus is alive, what's next? And so I wanted to quickly look at some of the things that Jesus actually did during his 40 days to help us understand the what's next. This is the first thing, and this is not a you know, chronological list. It's not an exhaustive list. I'm just picking out a few things that Jesus did. And the first one is simply this. He appeared to 500 plus people at the same time. Have you ever met someone who had a hallucination? Okay. If you have, it sometimes can be rather scary sometimes can be rather comical as they try to explain to you what they've actually seen. <clears throat> I've uh, had hallucinations before, uh, and it was the doctor's fault because they gave me a drug called Dilaudid. Uh, they thought that would somehow help my pain, but it caused greater pain. Uh, as soon as I would close my eyes, literally almost instantaneously, I would start having these really horrific, horrific hallucinations. And when I would try to explain them to Kyla, who was sitting like I'd literally take 10 seconds, my eyes would open back up and I would thoroughly scared, freaked out, sometimes even to the point of tears because of what I was seeing. Now, when I tried to explain to Kyla my hallucinations, she loves me, so she just kind of smiled and patted my head and like, wow, we need to get you some new medicine. <laughs> but if you've ever met someone who's had an hallucination, you just kind of write them off as, man, you've lost it. You need to get off of whatever you're taking. Now, have you ever met someone, two or three people, who had the exact same hallucination? Now, you might start to think, huh, that's kind of strange that two or three people, maybe four, maybe five, would have the exact same hallucination, but it's still at best kind of strange. You might just write them off as whack jobs. Jesus, who was dead, historical fact, murdered on Friday, appeared over the period of 40 days, and I'm picking on this one instance, where he appeared to over 500 people at one time. 1 Corinthians says it like this, For what I received I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. 
At the time that Paul is writing this, he's saying he appeared to Peter, to the rest of the disciples, and actually 500 people at the exact same time. Some were still alive. If you don't believe me, go and ask them what they saw. Central to the message of Christianity is the fact that Jesus is alive. So somewhere in there, you have to ask the question, did anyone see him? Did anyone see actually Jesus being alive? Not only that, what are the chances, okay, just statistically, what are the chances that you could get 500 people not only to see the same thing, but actually agree upon what they saw? Uh, Lee Strobel, who is an investigative reporter, wrote some great books called Case for Faith, Case for Christ, and uh, in these works, he said this, I went to a psychologist friend and said, if 500 people claim to see Jesus after he died, could it have been just a hallucination? He said, hallucinations are an individual event. If 500 people have the same hallucination, that's a bigger miracle than the resurrection. I love that Jesus, after he died, appeared to Peter, to the disciples, and appeared to over 500 people at the same time central to their message in the first century, central to our message in the 21st century, all of Christianity hinges on this one simple truth. Is Jesus Christ alive? If he is, then we need to reorient our entire existence around him. Why? Because everything that he said, everything that he claimed he would do is validated in the fact that death couldn't hold him. And this was a message that needed validation in the first century because people saw Jesus brutally murdered. That's number one, he appeared to over 500 people. Number two, Jesus appeared to Thomas per his request. I love that Jesus appeared to someone per his request. It says this in John. Now Thomas called Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. It's almost as if Thomas had thought about this a little bit. He knew exactly what he needed to see, what he needed to feel. He he knew exactly what the experience that he was looking for. And his conclusion was, if this happens, I will believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my, into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, and this is one of the most powerful confessions of Jesus as the God-man in all of Scripture. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Now, Thomas gets kind of a bad rap in Scripture. I'm sure some of you, even if you're not at all familiar with the Bible, have heard of the phrase or the title, Doubting Thomas. Well, what I love that Jesus, post-resurrection, appears to Thomas per his request. There are people who have the if-then statements. And you might be one of them. Have you ever said to yourself, if God will do this for me. If God will show himself to me like this, if God will reveal, if God will answer, whatever the if-then clause is. Have you ever had one of those? God, if you just do this, if you 
whatever it is, fill in the blank, then I will believe. See, Thomas was not, he had genuine doubt. And one of the things that I love about Thomas is Jesus was not afraid of Thomas and his doubt. He actually met Thomas exactly where he was at. But what I love about Thomas is he did not want to live in a world of doubt. Thomas wanted to believe. Thomas wanted to see. Thomas wanted to experience Jesus alive. So much so that when he sees Jesus, my Lord, my God, that is a strong confession. You are my Lord. I submit my life to you. You are my God. Now, that's Thomas. He transitioned so quickly from doubt to a genuine confession of faith. Now, there are other people who just say they have, they're filled with doubts and they have all sorts of questions. I want you to know that it's okay to have doubts. It's okay to have questions. But what I fear and what I see in most people who have doubts, who have questions, is they actually want to stay there. They don't want to transition from doubt or disbelief to actually making a confession of faith. So they say things like, if God would just do this, then I would believe. And my fear is they don't really want God to do what they're really asking him to do because they know if God actually did that very thing, much like he did for Thomas, they could no longer live as if they were the center of the universe. So if you're here today and you have doubts and you have questions, Jesus is not afraid of you, and he's not afraid of your doubts and your questions. Your question honestly has to be not what is your doubt or what are your questions, but do you really want to go to a place called belief, where you transition from just doubting anything and everything just because that's your, your MO, to actually being the man or the woman who says, I believe, I have a confession. Third thing, Jesus appeared to Peter unrequested. I love that Jesus appeared to Thomas per his request, and Jesus appears to Peter not because Peter requested Jesus. Now, I would venture to say that there are many here today who can relate with people, or relate with Peter, that he was the one who literally believed that his mistakes ruled him out. And I'm going to guess that some of you here today are similar to Peter, your sin, your Peter literally denied to a little girl that he even knew who Jesus was on the night that Jesus was getting ready to go to the cross. So it wasn't like it was a casual mistake, like after the first day he met Jesus and was confused with someone else, three years with Jesus, living next to him, listening to him, watching all these miracles, he completely denies Jesus. So Peter's mindset is, I'm done. I'm kicked, off the, I'm kicked off team Jesus. Jesus would want nothing to do with me because my, I'm a failure, a complete failure. And what I love that Jesus does for Peter is he <laughs> appears to Peter for, and gives him not only an appearance, but really a transformational truth for Peter, that your biggest failure, your biggest failure, God's grace is sufficient even for that. So I don't care what your failure may have been, what your denial may have been, what your doubt may have been, what your sin may have been. It is not bigger than God's grace in your life. There is nothing that you could do where Jesus would look at you and say, man, you are off the team. You are now on JV. 
There is no time or place where Jesus would say that to you. Even after seeing Jesus two times, Peter or Jesus appears to Peter a third time, and it records this story in John 21. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and it happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, it might seem like an insignificant detail, but when Peter says, hey, I'm going out to fish, this wasn't just a moment of like, hey, I'm hungry, let's go get some food, we'll come back to this whole discipleship thing later. Peter's what's next answer was, I'm ruled out. I might as well go back to what's most familiar, what's most comfortable, and that is the life of a fisherman, because before I met Jesus, that's what I was. I was a fisherman. And just more on a side note, I don't think it's at all shocking that they absolutely caught nothing. These guys, it wasn't like it was their first crack at fishing, okay? These guys knew the waters, they knew the seas, they knew how to fish, but they absolutely caught nothing. And it's almost as if God, in his great sense of divine sense of humor, is just communicating a big goose egg awaits you when you wander off and just do your own thing. Have you ever experienced the goose egg from God? Where you're just doing your own deal, going your own way, and what awaits you is nothing but a big goose egg of just nothing. That's exactly what happened. And so I love that Jesus comes to Peter and in the story uh, of the rest of, of John chapter uh, 20, if you remember back to, I'm giving a little bit more detail here, but the story of Peter's denial was around a fire of burning coals, okay? Might seem like an insignificant detail, okay? There's only two places in, in the New Testament where it mentions a fire of burning coals. One at Peter's denial, and then the other time, would you know it, when Jesus is on the beach in John chapter 21, meeting Peter in this place of where he thought he was off team Jesus. And it says in, in John chapter 21, uh, when they landed, John 21 verse 9, when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. So either Jesus is really trying to rub it into Peter like, hey, you remember this? You remember this, buddy? You remember when a little girl asked you, do you remember, do you know this man Jesus and you said no? Either Jesus is just being kind of sick and trying to rub it in, pour salt in the wound, or Jesus is recreating something for Peter. And have you ever had one of those moments in life where you're like, man, if I could just go back in time, I would say that so differently. I would do that so differently. If I could just have that moment in time back, well... Time travel will never happen. No matter how many movies promote time travel, it will never happen. You can never go backwards, ever, okay? I don't want to go back in time to try to fix some of the mistakes that I made. But what Jesus does here for Peter is he gives him a situation right here, right now. Peter, I'm going to recreate the scene as it were, and I'm going to ask you three questions. And it's really the same question three times, just in case you forget. Peter, do you love me? Jesus, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Jesus, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Jesus, I love you. And then Jesus looks at Peter and he says, follow, feed my sheep. 
Peter, you're not ruled out of the game because of your failure. You're not off of the team because of your mistake. I love that Jesus specifically appears to Peter. And it's more than just reinstating Peter back into ministry, as it were. Jesus, in this moment, in this scene on the beach, teaches Peter what I would think is a principle that derails many Christians today. And it's the principle in John chapter 21. It says, Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved, which was John, was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? Verse 21, when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Okay, this is a great question that Peter's asking. Jesus, what about him? What, you got a pretty unique relationship with him. What about him? And I love that Jesus basically tells Peter, man, be quiet. He says in verse 22, Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. This is a very gentle, gracious way of saying, Peter, it is none of your business what my plan is for John. And I think what derails a lot of people in Christianity today is they're more consumed and concerned with what God is doing in someone else's life than they are with what God is trying to do in your life. It might not seem like much, but the principle that Peter needed to learn is, Peter, when I initially met you and invited you, the invitation sounded like this, come follow me. When Peter's last conversation with Jesus before Jesus ascended, it was the same. Peter, do not worry about what I have in store for him. What I have in store for him, you, would you just follow me? If you're following what God is doing in someone else's life, do you know what that means? You're completely missing what God has in store for you. It is impossible to keep your eye, eye, just one, on this guy or this girl over here and be like, wow, God's doing all of that in their life and keep your eye moving in that direction to what God's doing. The message to you, if you're a Christian, is follow Jesus. Don't worry about what Jesus is doing in my life. Don't worry about what Jesus is doing in the life of someone sitting next to you. Listen to the invitation from Jesus. You follow him. Don't miss out on that. I love three instances. Appears to 500 plus people at the same time. He appears to Thomas completely unrequested, or requested per his request. And he appears to Peter, who probably needed it more than anyone because his, he thought his failure kicked him off, off of Team Jesus. So, my question is simply to go back, what is next? I didn't give you everything that Jesus did over a period of 40 days, but it was really helpful for me to examine what he did in 40 days to help me understand the answer to what is next. And I want you to know what is next for us is what was next for them. If you want to know what is next for you, if you've ever felt just stuck in your faith that you're not going anywhere, then I wonder if you have the right answer to what is next for you. And the what is next is Jesus articulated the mission. Okay? What is next is the mission of God. What is next for you? What was next for them was Jesus, now that you're alive and now that you're ascending into heaven, the what next, Jesus made it crystal clear for these men what their mission, what they were to give themselves completely to. 
Now, I've been a Christian for a long time. Uh, I'm 38 now, and I have memories of, of starting a relationship with God all the way back to almost age five. I've had many different ups and downs in my journey with God, but I would say in the last 20 years, the one question that I do not struggle with anymore is this question of, what is my mission? In the last 15 to 20 years, I have not, and I'm being completely honest, I'm not trying to exaggerate to you, I'm not trying to sound boastful or prideful, but I just don't wrestle anymore with what is my mission, meaning what am I giving my life to? Pretty early on in my 20s, God really grabbed hold of my life and we made it really clear, Michael, you can make this all about you, which I was doing at the time, or you can sign on for something so much better. And it's not going to be about you. It's going to be a life of sacrifice and a life of serving. It's going to be a life where you are following my lead in your life. And God made pretty clear for me in my early 20s, and I'm so thankful, I just don't struggle with this question, what am I to do with my life? Now, if I were to ask you the question, do you know what you're doing with your life? I don't mean like what your career is or what relationship you should begin or what relationship you should end. Those details are not insignificant. They're certainly important. But do you know what your mission is? Do you know what your life is about? You only have one life to live. If you believe in reincarnation, you're wrong. You're not coming back. You've got one life to live. Do you know what your life is about? Again, not the details of when you'll go here and when you will do this, but do you know what you have given yourself to? Now, the beautiful thing about what Jesus, being in relationship with Jesus, being a Christian, not being confused as to who I'm following, I did not have to come up with some cleverly drafted mission statement of, I, Michael Davis, am about this. And too many people try to figure out their life mission statement on their own. I received my mission statement. I didn't come up with it. I didn't create it. I didn't draft it. I received it. Why? Because Jesus Christ is alive. I have a relationship with him. And he articulated to his disciples almost 2,000 years ago the same message that is for us today. And if you look to Matthew chapter 28... Verse 16 through 20, this is the mission. If you want to know what your life is to be about, what you are to give yourself to, okay? I am talking you, what you're to give all of you to, not the details of life, but your life to. Matthew 28 says this, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee. Remember, Judas not only denied uh, knowing Jesus, completely betrayed him and committed suicide. So we had 12, but now there's 11. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Isn't that amazing? 40 days into Jesus being alive, them seeing Jesus, there are still some who are still doubting. He goes on in verse 19. Uh, then Jesus came to, in verse 18, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything 
I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, obviously, much could be said about what Jesus made very clear is what their mission uh, was to be. And I will look very, very quickly at simply, Jesus gave them what their mission was, what they were to be about. And then he coupled the mission with a very profound promise. The mission or the command was simply this, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them all that I have taught you. If you want to simply paraphrase that, go and help people who don't know God follow God. Go to the folks who have no idea who God is, who have no idea about God's grace, about God's goodness, about the generosity of God, the love of God, the mercy of God. Go to those who doubt, who are trying to seek, who are completely lost. Go to them. Help them to find God. Not as if God is somehow lost in the universe, but they are separated from God. Go to them. And when you find them, teach them, show them the way of Christ. Don't just teach them to make a decision to say, okay, I'm a Christian, and then you walk away from them. Help that individual to grow in the relationship with God so that in time, they will be a person who knows how to help other people find God and grow in that relationship with God. That is the mission. If you were to ask me, what am I about? I want to help as many people as I can find God. Not because God's lost, but because I know that many people are separated from God. What am I about? What is my mission? I didn't make this up. This is what Jesus told us our mission is to be about. Help people begin a relationship with God. Teach them how to walk with God. Now, can you imagine if you are the disciples and you're hearing this for the first time. Like 50, about 40 days prior to this, these guys had completely walked away from Jesus. In his hour of need, they completely abandoned him. In the garden, when the Roman soldiers showed up to take Jesus in chains, there wasn't one person who stuck with Jesus. They all abandoned him. And now Jesus gives this mission to these men and says, guys, go change the world, all of the world, not just part of the world, but take this mission, this message every corner of the world. You have to believe like they were thinking at some level, uh, Jesus, do you remember what happened like 40 days ago? Like we're scared little boys. We ran away. We're the wrong guys to entrust the magnitude of this mission with. But what I love about these men and I have, it's so tied into Jesus appearing to the 500, Jesus appearing to Thomas, Jesus appearing to the disciples and appearing to Peter. Over 40 days, he's instilling them confidence. Guys, this is not about you. This is going to be about me. And I love that Jesus gives them the promise, you don't do this alone. I am with you. I'm not only for you, I am with you. You will not be alone. The first moment these guys have to step up to the plate and take a swing is recorded in the story of Acts. The Holy Spirit comes after Jesus ascends to heaven to be with God the Father. The Holy Spirit descends, and we're not going to look at this entire story, but some pretty weird things start happening. People start speaking in tongues, which means there are people from different, all over parts of the world, and 
the disciples and other people started speaking in their native language. And everyone is asking this phenomenal question of, there's a bunch of drunk people here. What's going on? And Peter steps up to the plate and says, let me explain to you exactly what's happening right now. And in Acts chapter 2, Peter, who just 40 plus days prior denied even knowing Jesus, preached one of the most phenomenal messages about who Jesus was, starting with the Old Testament. And in his conclusion, he finishes in Acts chapter 2. He says this, uh, verse 36, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? That is such a profound question. If this is true, if Jesus is God's son, if he is Christ, if he is Lord, what am I to do? What is next? What is my response to this man who was killed but yet now is alive? Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that a phenomenal verse? Rather than Peter saying, Man, that is a great question. I'm not sure. I'll get back to you. 40 days earlier, he couldn't even confess that he knew the man. But now in verse 39, with great confidence, verse 38, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 39, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Verse 40, with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. I love that Peter stepped up to the plate and said, I'll say something about Jesus. And God uses this man who just probably a week earlier was fishing because that's what he thought his life was going to be about. And he uses this man, Peter, to introduce over 3,000 people to the person of Jesus Christ. Do you think at some point some of these guys said, man, well, this is a waste of time. (laughs) I can't believe this is what we have to do. Or do you think Peter and the other disciples were just like, wow, I can't believe this is what we get to do. I can't believe that we just saw from 11 to about 120 to about 3,000 people now confessing that Jesus Christ is, is God. He's alive. The rest of the story, the remainder of the story of Acts really tells the story of how God turned the first century world upside down and these men had a front row seat to see it all. So what's next for you? Okay, this is what was next for them. They were not confused. They, these guys were martyred in the first century because they were so convinced, not only of the mission and the message, but they were absolutely convinced that Jesus Christ was alive. And because someone who claimed to do and be what Jesus claimed to be was validated in the fact that Jesus is alive. They gave themselves to that. So I'll finish up quickly with what about you? What's next for you? How does this mission specifically 
the mission of helping other people find God and grow in a relationship with God? How does that play out specifically in your world, your everyday life? Well, what's next for you is no different than what was next for these disciples. The mission hasn't changed. Your mission, if you're a Christian, your mission, what you are to be about, what you are to give yourself wholeheartedly and completely to is helping other people begin a relationship with God. That's it. That's it. It's pretty simple. Help other people to begin a relationship with God. And when they begin that journey, come alongside them, love them and serve them, model for them what this thing called Christianity looks like. Teach them everything that someone has taught you, everything that you have learned about God, everything that you've learned about Jesus. Teach it to them. So the beautiful thing about this mission is it doesn't matter what your career is. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter any of those details. You will be around people all the time. Your mission is simply help people begin a relationship with God. One of the things that I wanted to share, uh, just finish with this, is we're called to do this together. We are called to live out this mission in the context of community. There's not one person here, and if you think that you are this person, I'll just tell you you're wrong. There's not one person here who is called to go live out Christianity on their own. There's not one of us. We are called to live in the context of community and live missionally together. One author in a book that I just um, had been reading recently called Radical Together said this, as long as Christians journey alone, no matter how radical they are, their effect will be minimal. But as men and women who are surrendered to the person of Christ join together in churches that are committed to the purposes of Christ, then nothing can stop the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Can't do this on our own. And if you are trying to do it on your own, I just stop. Be part of a community that is committed to doing this together. And I tell you what, if you're brand new to Genesis today or if you've been here for a long time, I want you to know this is what we're about. It's pretty simple. We're going to do the best that we can as a church community to help as many people as we possibly can begin a relationship with God. And when that decision is made, we're going to do the best job that we possibly can to come alongside them and love and serve and sacrifice and bless, teach, model for them what this thing called Christianity looks like. Now, you have, I think, a pretty tough question to answer. And the question simply is this. Is your church, is your community just something else in your life to juggle? Meaning, is this, is this just a Sunday thing for you? Meaning, is just you come here on Sunday mornings to kind of get a spiritual shot in the arm I've had a really rough week. I've had a tougher weekend, and my week this is not looking good. I just need to go to church to, to feel better about myself, kind of get my spiritual java juice, and hopefully make it through Tuesday or Wednesday, and then I'll self-will my way all the way back to Sunday. 
Is church literally just that for you? Or is, is church just, if you picture a guy juggling a lot of different things, I've got career and I've got family and I've got kids and I've got all of my other things that I love to do and I've got church and I'm just kind of doing this. I'm juggling everything. See, what I learned from the first disciples, what I learned from the early church is it didn't look like that. Their entire life was orientated around the community being on mission together. They still had jobs. They just didn't sit around. They still worked. They still served. They still did life, but they learned how to do life together. I just want you to know that if you consider Genesis to be your home, if this is a place you're exploring about whether you want this to be your home, I'd just be honest with you and this is what we're going to do. This is what we are about. This is what we have been about. This is what we will continue to be about. It's not going to change. If you're just looking to be part of a church where you can come and hopefully, you know, feel better about yourself and, you know, kind of ignore people and not deal with people and not be part of community, this probably is not going to be the place for you. Why? Because I'm going to be challenging you and hopefully other people will be challenging you. There's so much more. There is so much more that God has for you and that God has for us. I think one of the hardest things that people, and generally speaking in church, uh, the thing that hinders a mission from going forward, do you know what I think it is? Yeah, we could come up with a long list of, yeah, sometimes there's sin and there's just really bad leaders and really selfish people. I agree. But I think one of the things that hinders churches from actually being used by God is churches are afraid to change. They're scared to death that if we take seriously the mission of God, the church will no longer look the same. Can you imagine what it was like from Peter and the disciples? It used to just be 12 of them. And then there was about 120 of them. I imagine at some point they got pretty uncomfortable of like, man, this is not what it used to be like. Like I I liked when it was just 12 of us. We didn't have to deal with people. (laughs) We could just kind of focus Jesus and us. It's just Jesus and us. Can you imagine what it was like when 3,000 people came to faith? I imagine there was a lot of change that took place in the period of a few minutes. I remember when Genesis met in my, my living room. I remember that because I was there. And I remember what it was like when it was just four, five, six of us just praying, God, what do you want to do? We're just a bunch of nobodies, and we really love you, and we'd like to do something. (laughs) What do you want us to do, God? I was there, and I remember when this small little group that met in my living room began to grow a little bit bigger. You know what the first complaint that I heard from people was when 20 people showed up? Man, it's not like it used to be. And my response, I probably was not as gracious back then, was, do you really want to always be this Like 10 years from now, do you really just want to look and be like, we're so thankful it's just the same five people meet in Michael's living room. Couldn't be happier. I am not afraid of change. I'm actually excited for us as a community to continue to evolve and continue to grow. I'm so excited. If you were here last week, and not to pick on the testimony that was shared, I'm so excited because I believe God's at work in people's lives. And what spurs me on, what just 
excites my heart is that God wants to use you. He wants to use us to continue to make a difference for the gospel in this world. If you are here today and your life at some level resembles a little bit of Thomas, a lot of questions, some doubts, some fears, doing the seeking thing, I would challenge you and I would please just ask you to actually examine your heart. And do you really want to stay in that place? Or is today the day where you say, you know what, I'm done with my doubts and I'm going to begin a journey called faith? If Jesus is who he said he was and Jesus did what he did and Jesus is alive, I'll follow him. If you've not made that decision, make the decision today to begin a journey, to begin a relationship with God. There's only one way we can have a relationship with God and it's through Christ. I love that we are set free from thinking that we've got to perform for God, we've got to do enough good things or work hard enough or any of that, that we can begin a journey right where you are, right as you are, following him. And if you're here today and you're a Christian and you've been part of this church for a while or you're new to this church, I wanted to remind you that what's next for Genesis is we're going to trust God for great things. And Lord willing, we're going to reach a lot of people. And 10 years from now, I pray to God that we don't look like this. I pray to God that we will have testimony after testimony of a decade of seeing lives change because of Jesus. I hope that we don't look like this 10 years from now. I love where we are, but God's not done with us. He has more for us to do, more people to love, more people to serve, more people to sacrifice for, all for the sake that one more would meet Jesus and their life would be eternally changed. I'm not just talking about putting Band-Aids on people so their life here is easier. We're talking about the difference between heaven and hell, people's eternity being changed. One of my biggest fears is getting to heaven and standing in line with a bunch of people I know and they didn't confess Jesus. By the way, I don't think this is what the picture is going to look like, so it's not a hallucination either. <laughs> of people looking at me and saying, Michael, if you knew, why didn't you tell me? If you knew of Christ and you knew that Christ was the way, why didn't you tell me? We as a church will be bold about telling that Jesus Christ is the only way to know God, to have peace with God, to have forgiveness of sins. That's what we're going to do as a church. This is not like the big mission statement and vision for the next few years. This is it. Right now, right here, this is what we give ourselves to.